0: You're listening to an Airwave Media podcast.
1: Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We to on the the I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are returning to COVID. We're going to give the latest updates on um, the vaccine deployment, as well as variants, some updated data um, on vaccine efficacy, but before we do that, we we need to go into this with a little bit of an icebreaker because we're gonna cover <laughs> a lot of COVID content, and I think we we need to ease into this. So, Andrea, I actually Googled best icebreakers, <laughs> and <laughs> because I'm apparently not a very creative person. So I have three questions totally random, but I think they're a little bit fun. So what is your favorite strange food combination? <laughs> um huh
0: that oh I've got it I've got it All right cuz everybody thinks it's weird um but I grew up eating this and it's the most wonderful combination I love mac and cheese and especially if it's like easy mac like Kraft boxed mac and cheese with applesauce on top.
1: What? <laughs> what? Do you stir it into the mac No, and no, cheese? I have to eat
0: it on top like a layer. And then and then when I take bites, then I take a bite, you know, like a, a, a cross section, right? So I get a bite of the applesauce layered on top and then the, the mac and cheese. And you get the, you know, the hot, warm salty creamy mac and cheese and then you have the cold kind of sweet applesauce on top it's it's such a good combo and and fun fact the ancient Romans used to do you know slices of apples with you know cheese that's like that's like a food pairing so I think it's my way of transferring that you know, apple and cheese combo to, to
1: macaroni and cheese. Okay, you're taking a very fancy apple and cheese <laughs> pairing and you're totally butchering it. This sounds like toddler Andrea. Yeah, came yeah up with
0: I, I totally, like we started eating it as little kids and I love it um, to this day. And it's not like, I don't like sweetened applesauce. I get the unsweetened applesauce. So it's like a little bit tart, but it's such a good combination. You have to try it with Sophia and Dylan and I guarantee they will love it.
1: Okay, well, we'll (laughs) add it to the list. So mine, to me, it's not strange at all, but whenever I tell people that I like this, they think it's bizarre. Bananas and sour cream. I don't know. Does that strike you as odd? Yes, it, it does. does. It does. That's, I guess because people eat, tend to eat sour cream with savory things. Right. I, I, I don't know. It is delicious. It's like a banana cream pie. My grandma huh. Olga from Poland introduced me to this, and it is the most delicious thing. Highly recommend. I'm um, trying
0: to, like... Make that flavor in my mind right now and imagine what it might taste like.
1: (laughs) Banana cream pie. Banana cream pie. You have to try it. All right,
0: I will try it. I usually do like bananas with Nutella
1: spread on them Uh, or peanut butter, but I will give this a shot. Yeah, Nutella and pretty much anything. Um, Okay, next. Would you go to space if you knew that you could never come back to Earth? Oh, gosh. With what we
0: know now about space, I... I don't think so. I feel like if I knew that there was an alternate planet that had sun and warmth and beaches and animals, then maybe. But right now, it seems like most of the stuff we've discovered is pretty desolate. And I don't know
1: if I could give up animals. I love that you gave you know a scientific perspective in your answer. I <laughs> All I'm thinking is no, I'm not an adventurous person. Even if I could come back to Earth, I would not go to space. It does not appeal to me. I props to to all of our astronauts and incredible people who do go to space. I think it's fascinating. It just does not appeal to me, not at all. Well, um, I think
0: for me the terrifying part, I have claustrophobia, right? So, I think being in you know, a space shuttle and not having any control of like, you know, where you're going, what's going to happen when you're out there. That is the terrifying part. I, I, you know, my dad was on submarines and I feel the same way about that as I
1: do about space shuttles. I just can't even fathom doing that as a job. I'm just shaking my head over here. I won't even go scuba diving. Yeah, I, 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 (laughs) no. (laughs) Okay. Next on the list. The last one. Have you ever been mistaken for someone famous? Huh. I don't, I don't think so. I feel
0: like when I was a little bit younger, someone, I don't even remember who, said that I somewhat resembled Julia Roberts. And I think it's really just because we both have very pointy noses. Your but perfect I never, triangle nose. Right, the triangle <laughs> nose. But I, I never personally saw that. And I don't think that anybody else has pointed out another famous person
1: that's so interesting. I'm trying to picture you with that big curly hair, maybe. (laughs) Uh, Well, you're both gorgeous, so I could see that. So I was mistaken for two different actresses (laughs) at at different stages of my life. When I was younger and, um, dare I say, a bit less professional uh I used to get mistaken for Nicole Richie all the time I had blonde highlights uh maybe didn't dress super appropriately all the time whatever that means but yeah not not professionally I'll say (laughs) so yeah I got Nicole Richie I guess I could see that yeah really Yeah, yeah a
0: little bit I mean like the nose and the the facial structure
1: a little bit head on I see it not profile but head on I see it and then the next one I, I see a lot, and actually my students used to tell me this all the time, Rashida Jones. Really? You don't see it? Uh, I, I guess
0: so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. definitely the smile and stuff, for mm-hmm. sure. And you guys both have, you know, a semi-exotic look, I think.
1: Ooh, I like that. <laughs> well, I take it as a compliment. <laughs> anyway, so there, there's our little icebreaker. I hope uh, people are still listening. <laughs> <laughs> so, OK, before we get going with today's episode, we have to give one more shout out to our incredible interns who are working behind the scenes to help us develop content and develop infographics. Um, you know, Andrea, I know we we keep saying we're so inspired by this generation of young women in, in STEM, just mm-hmm. in awe of them. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's funny because
0: they have a lot more like general sense of like what's visually appealing, even though, you know, they're coming from kind of similar early career backgrounds than we did, but like Mm -hmm. the way that they come up with an infographic versus the, the way that we come up for with an infographic is very different. Like you can tell that there are some generational differences, both in, you know, how they use social media and graphic design and things like that versus what we do, which I find really interesting. And, you know, they're not... They're younger than us, certainly, but they're not that much younger than us, and I find it kind of interesting.
1: Well, I'm just thinking how we sent over the draft of our Gen Z post, our infographic, which turned out to be very controversial, <laughs> um, and how they were immediately like, "Nope, change the font, change the color scheme." Like, you know, they they definitely have their their finger on the pulse of you know what's cool and what would appeal to that generation. Yeah but you know we've spoken about this page women who engineer before and it's the same the same thing right it's this right. these incredible young women they highlight on their page um i don't know if you've seen their stem stories but they really go into detail on these individual stories women from different backgrounds entering different fields within engineering. And I think it's just such an awesome page.
0: Yeah. And I think what I love about it is that it's not just the stereotypical like biological scientists, right? They've got computer programmers, they've got chemical engineers, they've got, you know, biochemists, they've got all sorts of different careers across the fields of STEM. And I think that it's you know, just such a nice cross section of all the different career options that are out there. And, you know, it's something that we have emphasized, especially when we talk to like the middle schoolers at East Eastline Middle School is that if you have this curiosity of the natural world or answering the unanswered questions, you know, there's something out there in STEM for you.
1: For sure. So if you haven't already, guys, definitely make sure that you check out Women Who Engineer. That's at Women Who Engineer on Instagram. All right, Andrea, before we (laughs) dive into COVID, do you want to just recap last week's episode (laughs) on Lyme? Sure. So Lyme
0: disease part two is a little bit more controversial than part one. And we do encourage you to listen to part one before you listen to part two. Um, They go together as a pair, but part one really sets the stage with the basics. Part two, we get into the clinical presentation of Lyme disease, what Lyme disease itself actually is after you get infected with the bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi. We talk about the differences between localized Lyme disease versus disseminated Lyme disease. We talked about treatments for Lyme disease. Um, We actually posted an infographic about the treatments depending on the presentation. Um, And then we really dove into the misconceptions. So we talked a lot about the diagnostic tests for Lyme disease and why often Lyme is overdiagnosed because of the fundamental principle behind the testing. We also talked about labs that provide fake tests that basically over-report Lyme disease and aren't using um, an FDA-authorized or or scientifically sound testing methodology. And we talked about how those labs often partner with these clinicians that they're self-proclaimed Lyme literate that also promote this fallacy and prescribe disproven medical treatments that can be very dangerous. We then discussed the dangers of some of these disproven treatments. We talked about some examples, including over prescription of antibiotics, but also really kind of fringe treatments that have no scientific basis for them. Like drinking urine. Right, (laughs) exactly. And then we talked about the fallacy of chronic Lyme disease and how it's this generic, um, non-medically-based diagnosis for a slew of kind of generic symptoms and why using that often overlooks some legitimate real medical conditions. We talked about some of the organizations that come across as legitimate um, in promoting this sort of fallacy and how they've utilized a lot of celebrities to promote this. And then we talked about red flags to look out for, both with regard to kind of diagnostics, testing, and treatment, but also with regard to social media and um, information that's available to the general public. So there's a lot in there. We get that it's controversial. We get that a lot of people have been told things that are very different to that. All of the resources, the data, the scientific studies are on the website. Um, so please. Listen, and then also check out the links.
1: Yeah, we got a lot of heat for that <laughs> episode, <laughs> Andrea. Um, I didn't realize how controversial this topic was. Uh, we're very, very fortunate to be able to learn from Andrea, who has all this ex- uh, incredible uh, expertise on Lyme disease. So thank you again, Andrea. All right, let's do this. Let's talk about the state of COVID and the vaccine rollout. All so right. by early March, the U.S. had really hit our stride right with vaccine administration. We started administering more than 2 million shots per day. Mm-hmm. And this surpassed President Biden's initial goal of 1 100 million vaccines in his first 100 days. We actually reached that number by day 58, which was really fantastic. And
0: I think, Jess, it's important to note that we're actually continuing to accelerate that. So as of last week, our average rate of vaccination was 3.3 million vaccines a day. The um, White House put out some statistics on that. And so that rate has been climbing um, since kind of early March, which is really, really encouraging to see.
1: And we've actually doubled that that original goal of 100 million vaccines to 200 million vaccines by the end of April, and it seems that we are on track for that. So that's fantastic. Absolutely. So as of April 14th, about 124 million people had received at least one dose of the vaccine. This is in the United States, and almost 77 million had been fully vaccinated. So that translates to 37.3% of the U.S. population receiving at least one dose and 23.1% fully vaccinated.
0: That's so encouraging to see Jess. You know, I think I think we want to applaud that, but we also have to understand that there's still a long way to go, right? Those are not our benchmarks for herd immunity. We still are estimating we need about 75 to 80% of the population vaccinated. And I think it's also important to emphasize the fact that, you know, we're Today, we're going to talk predominantly about United States statistics, but we know that many other countries are lagging behind us by quite a bit. And we know that this is a global effort and we have to get everybody around the world
1: vaccinated. Absolutely. And what happens around the world is going to impact all of us, right? Absolutely, because yep. we're still traveling and the, the virus moves all over the world as we know in this pandemic. So uh, this truly is a, a global health issue. And the other thing that well, obviously we're going to talk today about the variants, but that also really impacts things, right? Because that can have an impact on vaccine efficacy. And again, we will talk about that today, um, but we really are in this race, right? It's mm-hmm. a race between vaccine deployment and the development of these variants. And as we like to call it the evolutionary, the microbial evolutionary
0: arms race, right? So we're We're trying to counteract the spread of the virus and the rate of the virus mutating with vaccination. And so, you know, we've emphasized this on our social media pages, but I think it's worth noting here, the next really eight weeks are gonna be critical in determining what path we're gonna take at this point.
1: And of course, the whole reason that vaccines are so important is every single time that the virus gets transmitted from one person to another person, it has an opportunity to mutate, right? So we really need to stop that because that's how we're going to keep getting these mutations, these variants of the virus. And again, this all has implications for vaccine efficacy
0: absolutely yeah so every time the virus replicates and of course this happens when a person is infected as well but though every time a a virus replicates random errors happen right because nothing is perfect and some of those random errors now become mutations in the virus that can actually change the behavior of the virus and that's where we're seeing the emergence of these variants so As the virus spreads more quickly, there's more people getting infected. The mutation rate is going to be faster just as a function of how quickly that virus is spreading. And so that's really why it's critical that aside from getting vaccines deployed as quickly as possible, we still want to be adhering to all these mitigation measures so we can slow the spread down.
1: So the CDC has released these Forecasts. So as of April 12th, the national forecasts predict that somewhere between 264,000 and 850,000 new cases of COVID-19 will likely be reported during the week ending May 8th. They've also done projections for hospitalizations and death. So with regard to hospitalizations, they're forecasting that between 2,500 to 9,300 new COVID-19 hospitalizations will be reported on May 10th. And then with regard to deaths, they're forecasting that 2,500 through 10,500 new COVID-19 deaths will be reported during the week ending in May 8th. And that would bring the total number of U.S. deaths to just under 600,000 lives lost due to COVID-19. Andrea, did you want to give us some of the current stats Sure. Yeah.
0: I just before that, you know, it's it's a very sobering statistic. And, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit about some of the concerns with one of the vaccines in the U.S. And I think, you know, we want to all kind of keep that big picture in mind. Right. We have 600,000 deaths already due to covid-19, you know, so I think keeping a, a risk benefit mentality in your mind is really important here.
1: Well that's so important, Andrea. And actually, just going back to that post that we did, um, trying to speak to, to Gen Z, right? These young adults, and, and we'll talk about how variants are impacting young adults in particular. But we've seen how many comments do we see this very, you know, nonchalant, I'll I'll take my chances with the virus. Right. Even if, yes, you're right, if you're young and healthy, your odds of very severe illness are low, although, as we'll discuss, that might be changing in light of some of these the variants, but what about... If you transmit it to an elderly person in your family or a neighbor with cancer or some other pre-existing condition. So I think if you're listening to this, no matter how old you are, if, if you're in touch with anyone, you know, in Gen Z, I would really think, you know, think about messaging, right? Because they have this mentality where they're untouchable, they're invincible, even if that's the case let's remind them that they can still transmit the virus to someone who's not as fortunate as they are to have such a robust immune system, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that that's really important. Thanks for raising that, Andrea. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, So currently where we sit with new cases um, as of April 15th there were 74,367 new cases in the US and that is a 14-day change of an increase in of 8%. So we are still seeing case numbers climb around the country. In addition we're seeing a 14-day change in hospitalizations of an increase of 8 8%, 8% across the country as well. And as we know cases case numbers precede hospitalizations which precede deaths meaning that deaths and hospitalizations lag behind increases in case numbers but we're now starting to see hospitalizations increase Um, while currently deaths are not increasing the next few weeks will be very telling if if some of these hospitalizations um, are then translated to deaths as we know there's a several week lag behind that but it's important to note that the demographics of those people that are being hospitalized is shifting so you know we have a larger proportion of the elderly population in the U.S. that is currently vaccinated partly because of the priority groups that start with the vaccination, but also partly because younger adults are considering themselves less less likely to get vaccinated. Some of that is is social, some of that is situational, but hospitalizations are now shifting toward younger people. So Uh, adults 18 to 40, uh, a larger proportion of those people are becoming hospitalized with COVID-19, presenting with cardiovascular issues, pulmonary issues, all sorts of things that previously, you know, were mostly reported in older populations or populations with risk factors. Um, And I think that's really important to keep in mind. Now, 28 states, sorry, Jess, were you gonna?
1: Well, no, I was just gonna jump, I'm sorry. I, I know we have a lot to cover here, but I was just gonna say, A lot of things could be contributing to that, but part of it and we've talked about this andrea is that people are prematurely letting their guard down right and and, and lifting yes. these mitigation measures way prematurely lifting mask mandates and i think people have this false sense of confidence it's a combination of this false sense of confidence yes we have deployed a great number of vaccines but andrea as you said we are not at that critical threshold yet where we can let our guard down and yeah people are sick of covid aren't we all but this is the worst worst possible time to let down our guard, because yeah. then we'll have these variants crop up, which will threaten the efficacy of vaccines and, you know, vicious cycle. But sorry, you were about to. to yeah, no, I right. mean, it's a great
0: point And I think we'll dig into that in, in a minute. But, um, you know, this this increase in cases is really consistent across the U.S. So currently, 28 states around the country are reporting consistent increases in case numbers. And, you know, maybe we'll post this little infographic, uh, although, you know, this is this changes daily but but one's I want to mention are states like Michigan, Minnesota and Florida. And the reason I want to mention that is because a lot of these increases in case numbers are driven by the variant B117, which is also known as the UK variant and in those states in particular the majority of new cases are coming from this particular variant and across the country this variant b117 1. 1. is now the dominant form of the virus in the u.s mm-hmm. um, it's been detected in all 50 states as well as washington dc and puerto rico in new york city New variants, and this is B117 and a few others, a few that are unique to New York City, for example. Uh, but new variants account for 70% of new cases in New York City, and B117 is accounting for 50% of new cases in several recent hotspots, including Minnesota, Michigan, and Florida.
1: Yeah, Andrea, if I remember correctly, I think that we're seeing, or Michigan saw a 133% increase in cases among 10 to 19 year olds right Right. exactly and we had that controversial yet another controversial post saying that children and young adults are really driving this increase in cases maybe can we just talk very briefly about that yeah let's do that because
0: I do want to get into the demographics of the variants but I think it's important to revisit that controversial statement
1: Yeah, and so we weren't, we're not saying that the virus is more transmissible among children versus adults, let's say. Uh, What we're saying is that previously we weren't seeing the virus being transmitted all that much among children, and that's the change, right? Exactly. Now we are seeing that children are transmitting the virus more so than the original strain of the virus exactly and i think that's
0: really important to keep in mind because children were previously not thought to be drivers of transmission people were generally more lax with children right they can hang out with each other they can do these activities they can do these things and maybe parents or the children themselves were not being as diligent about mitigation measures but now that we're seeing these pockets of cases it was 750 schools that had associated outbreaks of COVID-19 in Minnesota and um, and we're seeing it's not it's not necessarily from inside the school itself but it's from gatherings with children it's from after school or extracurricular activities and now you have this whole group of the population that previously was not a concern that are now adding to the susceptible population that can contribute to the spread of the virus and if you add that to the fact that adults are now getting vaccinated but children are not eligible and probably won't be for quite some time you're shifting the whole dynamics of this viral spread toward a younger population. And that's children, but it's also young adults like the Gen Z.
1: Mm-hmm. And w- what we're not saying is that all schools should automatically close for in-person education, right? We, we do understand that, you know, you have to weigh the, the pros and cons of, of, of schools being open. And it, as a mother to two young children, I really do understand, of course, the necessity of having children in school. However, we must, you know, we have to shift our focus to mitigation. Okay, let's talk about universal mask wearing, right? Of course, for staff but also for children right now we're approaching warmer months so there can be you know windows open and emphasis on in- improved ventilation so again we're, we're not necessarily saying that all schools need to immediately close down but you as andrea as you just said we have to be mindful this really does shift the dynamics of transmission and we really have to ramp up mitigation measures among children and we're not just talking about schools we're also we've seen so uh, many outbreaks linked to sporting events mm-hmm. and basically other events and gatherings of of children and young adults, absolutely. And it's a great point. You know,
0: mask wearing is an absolute must um, for anybody, particularly those that are not eligible or not vaccinated yet. And the reason that this particular variant is so concerning is that it's it's, it's estimated to be fifty to hundred percent more transmissible. It seems to be. It seems to have a slightly faster replication cycle. It seems to, from some early data, be more effective at adhering to that receptor, that ACE2 receptor that we talk about in our cells, so that it can more efficiently infect people. It may also lead to higher viral loads within an infected person, which might also transmit to or correlate to um, increased transmissibility. Now, In children, it doesn't seem to, at least right now, cause more severe illness, but it is more transmissible. We are seeing that it is causing more severe illness in younger adults, though. And so this is something that we need to keep our eyes on. And we also are going to obviously continue to monitor the emerging data with children. So part of why we are seeing a shift in the demographics of hospitalizations toward younger adults is partly because more and more older adults are vaccinated, so they're protected against severe illness, but also the fact that these variants, in particular B one one seven, seems to be linked with um increased disease severity for younger adults, ok.
1: But now the good news, right. um, <laughs> the the available vaccines for covid. Are effective against the B one one seven variant. We've seen more and more data demonstrating that there's no impact on effectiveness compared to the originally reported clinical trial efficacy. Right. So this is good news. This is has been consistently reported for the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson, and the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccines. Right. And we know that we've gotten questions about some of the others, the Sinopharm and the
0: Sinovac and Sputnik five and you know we will of course update as we have data we just don't have a ton of visibility on those vaccines right now they've they've only published a limited amount of data that we have access to and since they're not being used in the U.S. We don't have a lot of even non-reviewed data to go off of.
1: So what about, just very briefly, I know we have a lot of ground to cover here, but of course there are other variants that have cropped up that are of mm-hmm. concern. Uh, I know that some preliminary data show that the vaccines also appear here to be effective against some of the more concerning variants, right? But- uh, this is an evolving situation. So everyone keeps saying, you know, are we going to need boosters? The answer is maybe, <laughs> right? right? right. We, we have to see how things evolve over time. It is possible that we will need a booster shot, right?
0: Yeah. And and there's been a little bit of conflicting reports, especially with regard to B1-351, which is colloquially called the South African variant, So Pfizer was working on a pediatric trial. That's the 12 to 15-year age group, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But um, they observed... Efficacy, um, pretty good efficacy against the B1351 variant. Um, and then there was a recent press release slash limited study that came out of Israel recently that is reporting that the vaccine does not provide
1: as much efficacy against that particular variant. And just to be um, clear, sorry, the B1351, that's also known as the South African variant. Right. Okay. Sorry. Go
0: on. So a lot of people misinterpreted this Israel study and they were saying that getting vaccinated made you 8 times more susceptible to B1351 than not being vaccinated and that's not what the study was saying at all. Um the study was saying if you looked at the breakdown of infections that occurred in vaccinated people because of course we know no vaccine is 100% effective. Proportion of the viral variants that were infecting vaccinated persons were shifted a little bit more toward the B1351 variant. That was the data that they used to conclude that the vaccine isn't effective. Now, it's important to note that this was an observational study and, and there's a limited amount of interpretation you can take from that. On top of that, the vaccine is extremely effective. So you're not more likely to get infected with vaccination than being unvaccinated. That's just patently false. We do need to see additional data. This was a very small study. So as of right now, there appears that there is some efficacy. It may be reduced against some of these more concerning variants, which really underscores why we need to get people vaccinated before more variants emerge.
1: Okay. Let's talk about some of the recent updates. Uh, earlier this month, Pfizer uh, and BioNTech, they released a press release updating the public on the results of their their trials. And then just a few days ago, Moderna did the same. Mm-hmm. So let, let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. Uh, so, okay. So I, I'm going to jump to the conclusion first, because <laughs> yes. I feel like there's been a lot of misinterpretation. So obviously, we're tracking these vaccine, you know, the 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 trial data over time because we want to know how long do the vaccines provide protection, right? Mm -hmm. But we are limited by the amount of data that we have available. So if the clinical trial started six months ago, we have six months worth of data, right? Right. So long story short, and we will get into the nitty gritty in just a moment, Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna, they released the statement saying that, good news, the data from six months after the the second dose of the vaccine, we're seeing super high efficacy, right? So for Pfizer, they found about 91.3% efficacy. And then for Moderna, I think it was just over 90%, right? So Mm -hmm. very comparable. What this means is that these vaccines provide incredible protection against symptomatic COVID-19 for at least six right. months. It <laughs> yeah. does not mean, and if you see my arms are flailing, this does not mean that the vaccines are only effective for six months, right? Of course, we're going to keep tracking people over time. We we assume protection it, it likely lasts much longer than six months, but we just need more data points to confirm that.
0: Right. And I think this underscores the scientific method, right? We don't make claims for which we don't have data for, right? And you know the general public has misinterpreted this for saying we're only saying it's six months and this is not true and if you look at the antibody levels that we're seeing at the six month point there's not a drop-off that's really substantial so we would expect that this protection will persist for quite a bit longer. And of course, you know, these companies and these independent studies that are also conducting these um, longitudinal evaluations will continue to update this data.
1: And these data were so promising. So for for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, they found 100%, the vaccine was 100% effective against severe disease as defined by the CDC, and then over 95% effective against severe disease as defined by the the FDA. Just slightly different definitions, right? So right. the C- CDC defines severe disease as needing hospitalization, intensive care, or a ventilator to breathe, or death, whereas the FDA defines it as um, including pneumonia, severe acute respiratory syndrome, and multi-organ failure, or death. These, I mean, that's incredible efficacy.
0: Yeah, and we actually got questions about how this severe illness is classified, and we did do a post on this um, I don't know, a couple of months ago. But we, you know, we've highlighted that. Maybe we'll reshare it again. But ultimately, there's some clinical criteria that the FDA has in part of this definition.
1: And in addition to the efficacy data, of course, safety data <clears throat> excuse me, have been collected as well uh, for participants who had a follow-up of at least six months after the second dose, and we're seeing a very favorable safety and tolerability profile. So these trial data are demonstrating fantastic efficacy and safety for at least six months, which is fantastic mm-hmm, okay, let's see where to next, Andrea? Should we talk did you want to talk at all more about the efficacy against the b one three five one
0: I mean, I think you know we we kind of summarized it here again the 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 data that we have we've got a little bit of conflicting information in the Pfizer group they had a they had a small arm that were looking at uh, eight hundred participants. And they, they only found nine cases of COVID-19, and these all occurred in the placebo group. Um, so of this small cohort, vaccine efficacy was 100%. Now, we don't want to necessarily say that it's going to be true for millions or thousands even of people. But at least right now, this particular study does
1: demonstrate some efficacy against the B B1351 variant. Thank you for that update. And then um, Moderna did also uh, say in their press release that they are working, they're testing some booster shots against some of these variants, uh, some of these variants that are emerging, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So right now there's some preclinical data among mice, and those are the results of those uh, preclinical trials are very promising, and they're going to publish those in the coming months. So do we need a booster to be determined, but these companies are working on them, um, you know, these variant specific vaccines and booster shots.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to note that, you know, so these variants, the the reason that they're concerning is that they have this mut- these mutations in the spike protein. And so, because the vaccine is using that RNA template for the spike protein, changes in the protein itself will obviously need to be updated in that RNA template as well if those spike proteins are different enough that our immune system is not going to protect us as effectively. And so what they're doing is they're just really revamping the sequence of that RNA template so that when it makes the new spike protein after vaccination, it'll, refre- it'll reflect the most current structure of the spike protein that includes those new mutations.
1: Andrea, I think, I think we have to talk about the Johnson & Johnson, uh, the, the Janssen vaccine. Uh, obviously I'm sure we've all seen headlines everyone is up in arms and very nervous uh, because as I'm sure we've all heard the vaccine is on pause right now due to some concerns around blood clotting so there were six cases of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis CVST that occurred among 6,800,000 uh, 6,800,000 people who were vaccinated, right? So that's six cases per almost 7 million vaccines administered. Mm-hmm. That translates to a rate of point zero 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 eight eight percent if I'm remembering correctly. Correct. Obviously, it's, this is... Oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say it's 0. 0.87 out of a million,
0: basically. So less than one in one million,
1: so very rare and what I'll turn it over to you Andrea I know you you tuned in to the entire (laughs) hearing and you'll have some details to fill in for folks but I want to highlight for you that that should signal to you how incredible our vaccine surveillance system that something that is so rare would cause us to put everything on hold and investigate further to ensure that there was no that there is no actual safety concern so for me, this just really <laughs> instills more confidence in our vaccine surveillance system and how I, I can't think of anything that is monitored as closely as these vaccines make a great point there. And
0: we've discussed um, VAERS, which is VAERS or the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System in previous podcast episodes and in previous posts. And we may, in fact, revisit it again. But this is ultimately the utility of a surveillance system such as VAERS. Now, not everything in VAERS is a credible claim because anybody can report anything to it But because so many people are reporting things to it, very rare legitimate adverse events, such as these six cases of CVST, will be found.
1: So, Andrea, you tuned into the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Any highlights or anything you just want to... Yes.
0: Yeah. So this um, type of blood clot, CVST in general, is very, very rare to begin with. The instances that were observed in the case of the people that were, you know, had been recently vaccinated after the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It was more rare because it presented with a condition called thrombocytopenia, which means low platelets. So platelets are also called thrombocytes. And so what that means is normally platelets are involved in the clotting process. And here's a little brief immunology tutorial. But what is happening in these clots is that the platelets are, are being destroyed. So they're not able to effectively clot because you don't have enough platelets. So normal treatment for any sort of clotting, including CVST would be a blood thinner type treatment like heparin, but when platelets are being destroyed in the case of these thrombocytopenic episodes, treatment with heparin can actually make the condition worse. And so the reason or the primary reason for this initial pause in this discussion was predominantly to advise healthcare providers about this possible link so that they're not treating these people with heparin because that could actually exacerbate the clotting condition. So that I think is really important to understand. So this is very, very rare. It is a rare presentation and it has to be monitored clinically differently than traditional clotting. So then, yes, I watched the entire ACIP hearing on Wednesday afternoon, and I took quite a bit of notes. Um, So there were six instances of this CVST. Um, One patient actually died, unfortunately. Um, They did have a discussion during the hearing about whether this heparin treatment that shouldn't have been administered exacerbated it, and they didn't want to make any judgments on that at this point, but the other five are in various stages of recovery. Several have been discharged at this point. These six were all white women aged 18 to 48, and the median time to onset of this CVST was eight days after receiving their vaccine, and the range was six to 13 days. So, part of the reason that CDC has continued to pause for an additional seven to 10 days to continue reviewing the data after this hearing is because there are about 3.8 million vaccinations or people that have been vaccinated that are in what they're calling the risk window, meaning they're sometime in the two weeks after their vaccine. So, they want to continue to kind of monitor these people, determine if any new occurrences you know, are diagnosed or reported and also to raise awareness of the differences in the treatment. It's also important to note for all of you listening that if you recently received the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, there's no need to panic. As we mentioned, 6.8 million vaccinations have been administered. Only six instances have occurred and there are symptoms to keep an eye on. So If you start to develop things such as severe headache, this is severe headache um, because this is a brain-related clot, um, abdominal pain, leg pain, or shortness of breath within the couple of weeks after your J&J vaccine, contact your healthcare provider. Also, let them know that you recently received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So this is going to kind of help direct their diagnosis and treatment plan for you.
1: Right. And Um, that's important to highlight is that this is something that is treatable. Correct. Correct. Exactly. So again, the
0: the CDC ACIP had a very, very in-depth hearing. We went through all the different demographics. There were no obvious risk factors. Three of the women were classified as having obesity. One had asthma. One was on um, some sort of hormonal supplement. It was unclear if it was a contraceptive or hormone replacement, but there was no clear pattern. So as of right now, they didn't want to make kind of vaccination criteria or guidelines because there's only been six instances, right? We can't really make any sort of true extrapolation on risk factors or things like that right now.